The Athletic. Hello, this is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Each week we tackle a topic regarding football tactics, tactical trends and data analysis in football. This week, I think a little from each column. I'm Ali Maxwell. No squad rotation at all this week, sticking with a winning side. Mark Kerry and Michael Cox are with me from The Athletic. Mark, how are you? I'm all right, thanks, Ali. I'm um, I'm a little bit static at the moment. I've got my leg in a cast, and I'm on oh. crutches at the moment because I had a bit of a football injury last week. Oh, horror tackle or off the ball innocuous incident? The latter, which is maybe no. even worse. Really, I've I've snapped my Achilles, which is a bit annoying. Oh. Um, but fortunately, I get to talk about football as part of my job, so it's fine. Um, still got a lot of football in my life, so it's all good. I am. Genuinely, incredibly sorry to hear that. That is, um, without wanting to make you feel worse, about as bad as it gets, <laughs> isn't you. it, in terms of uh, football injuries? Uh, Michael, all in one piece? Yeah, I feel like I'm boasting by saying that. But yeah, all's well here. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Almost too healthy. Uh, <laughs> on, on your menu last weekend was a big game in the WSL and the final of the African Cup of Nations. Yeah, AFCON final was, as it usually is, nil-nil and decided on penalties, but I thought it was quite interesting. And, and Senegal, uh, the better side in, in, in the 120 minutes, and I think probably the best side of the tournament as well. And yeah, it's a, a big week in the WSL. Chelsea beat Manchester City uh, 1-0 on Sunday, but really the big game is Friday night back at Kings Meadow, where Arsenal, the league leaders, come to town. Um, and obviously that's second against first in the WSL. And I must say, I really like Friday night games. I know that get a bit of a mixed reaction. You probably don't want one every week as a spectator, as a supporter. But yeah, the odd Friday night game, I just get really excited about. I think it's a great way to end the week and start the weekend. Mm, quite quite a spicy title race in WSL at the moment. Uh, looking forward to reading future pieces on it. And are there any theories or do you have any theories or opinions on why the African Cup of Nations final, as you say, as always... It's nil-nil and decided on penalties. What are the, what's the tactical trend there? Well, I mean, it's a very defensive tournament overall. Um, the goals per game rate this time was about 1.9 and that was boosted by the fact there were quite a few extra time periods and the fact that the most, the highest scoring game in the tournament was the third place playoff, which kind of <laughs> doesn't count, if you know what I mean. Um, and I think a combination of that and the fact that the teams are often exhausted by the time they get to the final um, means that, yeah, that is... I mean, I, I would very rarely predict a nil-nil, but I, I was watching it with a friend and said, yeah, this is going to be nil-nil. Um, but it was not a bad game. There's some. There's been some dreadful nil-nils over the years, but there were chances in this one, so I quite enjoyed watching it. I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon, but I just get really wound up. Well, it happens a couple of times a year where there's a high-profile penalty shootout and there's a viral picture of the goalkeeper having some notes on the penalty takers on a water bottle or a piece of paper or something like that. Um, Mark, I think it's probably fair to say that all goalkeepers at all levels have that. It's probably actually nothing out of the ordinary or particularly interesting. Yeah, at all levels. And you think this has been going on for some time now, as in, I know that obviously with video and stuff, it's far, and data, of course, it's far more freely available, but this, some, this isn't something that's really that new, even in you know the history of football. So I think it's just doing due diligence which isn't all that surprising 
a bit of planning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave the curmudgeon behind. <laughs> and I'm interested to know that there's so much good stuff on the Athletic site at the moment. Mark, do you have a, a favourite piece that you've read on site this week? Um, well, I had a, a flick through uh, some interesting stuff today, I, as well as obviously reading Michael's stuff and uh, John Muller, our uh, fellow uh, data guy, is is that I like reading just kind of fun stuff in general. And there was one by Jordan Campbell, uh, our Rangers writer, who wrote a piece this morning. He's found the doppelganger of Diego Maradona, which I think is hugely interesting. It was a, a UEFA Youth League playoff game between Rangers and Sevilla. Uh, and he said at the start of the game, it looked like a complete doppelganger. Carlos Alvarez, young 18-year-old, and he said the game started and he actually started playing like him as well. So definitely one to watch, Carlos Alvarez. Remember the name. <laughs> I saw the picture that, that Jordan tweeted and I had no context as to what game he was at and it was it was pretty uncanny. It was like a sort of Michael Jackson impersonator, yeah. but Diego Maradona on the pitch and by all accounts quite an exciting young player as well. Uh, Michael, what have you enjoyed on the athletic site this week? Uh, Matt Slater's been doing some really good stuff. He's, uh, I suppose, the opposite kind of writer to me and Mark. He really focused on the kind of the big stories and news stories. And he did a really good explainer of why the UK and Ireland have decided not to, uh, or decided to withdraw from the running to host the 2030 World Cup and instead focus on the Euros two years beforehand. It's just, uh, yeah, just a really comprehensive article and thought it did the job very nicely. Just a relentless investigative journalist, Matt Slater. Unbelievable stuff. Uh, well, you mentioned John Muller. He's written a piece called Visualising Possession. Where is every Premier League team having more of the ball than their opponents? I dare say for anyone listening to this podcast, that will be right up your rally. So make sure you check out John's piece as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the place to be uh, to pick up a third off an annual subscription. If you're not a subscriber of The Athletic, head there today to sign up. Let's get into today's topic, which is how to measure centre-backs with stats. Mark, we've done a similar episode on, on goalkeepers. I think it may have been your debut on the pod, uh, of course. So why are we moving next to centre-backs? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I think it's something we spoke about with the, the goalkeepers, where with data, it's sometimes... Well, it's the absence of data for goalkeepers in some regard and specifically defenders, I suppose even more specifically centre-backs, where, yeah, it is the absence of an event that, that makes good defending and good goalkeeping. So mm. it's one to sort of unpick and unpack in this episode as to why it is tricky um, and how we can try and go about quantifying uh, a good defensive display like we tried to with, with a good goalkeeping display. Um, and it's difficult. And this is, I suppose, what we'll come on to. Do you think centre-back is the hardest position on the pitch to definitively rate or measure? I'd say so, because I suppose everywhere else on the pitch, more or less, even including kind of full-backs, um, it is the, the presence of an event. This is why we spoke about it last week, didn't we, in terms of on-ball data, event data, uh, and we can sort of look at count data, how much a certain player does a certain action and use that as a proxy to, to say that they are maybe good or bad at something or that's their style in terms of the frequency of certain actions. But given that it is the, the absence of action, sometimes in, in defensive displays, good positioning, good teamwork, good communication, those sorts of things, which are unquantifiable for the large part, mm. um, it makes it really tricky. Um, and yeah, from a recruitment perspective, you've got to think of more creative ways to, to look at a defender. And of course, I'm obviously coming out from the data perspective, you can do traditional scouting, which is video and live scouting. And that can obviously tell you how good a mm. centre-back is, but um, doing it at scale is, is often quite tricky. 
Yeah, leaving data to one side, Michael, it's a difficult position to rate, I think, with the eye test as well, with more traditional scouting and more traditional analysis, whatever you want to call it. You know, some errors, defensive errors, or some strong bits of of defending are are obvious, are clear to to anyone that watches a game. But also quite a lot of what makes a centre-back good or bad feels sort of less obvious. Yeah, I think that is very true. Um, a couple of things spring to mind there. One is the whole Paolo Maldini thing saying that if I have to make a tackle, it's because I've made a mistake. And the other is the fact that it's quite rare that a defensive statistic kind of goes viral. But there was that thing about Virgil van Dijk and how he hadn't been dribbled past for a couple of years. And it's it's not necessarily something that's obvious, is it? Not doing something over a long period of time. Um, so yeah, that's where you have to dig into the stats. So no, I agree. I think a lot of time, a, a, re- a lot of the time, a really good centre back display, you won't really see any individual moment that stands out. It's just about being solid over ninety minutes or mm. over the course of the season. Yeah, but of course, a lot of what makes a good defensive display, either over ninety minutes or a good defensive unit over the course of a season, is collective. Michael, maybe more so than in other areas of the pitch. You know, a strong defence is exactly that collectiveness, teamwork, tactics maybe, communication, good coaching, all of these things go into it, makes it very difficult to zoom in, hone in on on one individual player within that unit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've spoken about this before, how um, there's been some academic research, particularly the late Gary Gillard, we've mentioned a few times, um, where he basically found that individuals make the difference going forward and that the quality of your attack tends to be about the strongest individual um, and the, the quality of your defence is often about the, the weakest individual. So, yeah, it's about, you know, a collective effort and, and minimising and hiding any weaknesses more than it is about one individual dominating the play. I think as well, it's, it's really hard to quantify who has, I suppose it's exactly what you guys are saying, but who was the kind of the instigator of the really good piece of defending? So you could have someone who's really key in shepherding a player to to maybe towards the touchline if it is a centre-back and the maybe the fullback is the one to make the action. Now, from a data mm. perspective, it's the fullback who gets the tackle there, but the, the centre-back was really key in, in actually shepherding, doing that kind of good piece of defending, which isn't logged from a you know an event data perspective. So it kind of feeds into that whole team dynamic more so than anything. Let's take a look at, at what does get measured, the sort of top-line event data stats that you've alluded to there, Mark. What, what are the ones that you would say are the, are the most visible, the, the most widely used in the mainstream? Yeah, I think widely used is probably the thing that we kind of go with rather than necessarily my opinion on how valuable they are in assessing how good a, a defender is. But um, like I say, it's it's sometimes the, the off-ball um, events that are really key to a, a defender doing really well. But I suppose you can think of it more in terms of a defender's style more so than their success. So the certain... It, event data, uh, certain statistics that can show maybe whether a defender is going to be a bit more proactive or reactive in their actions. So for example, if you've got a player who's making a really high volume of interceptions, um, reading the play really well, that suggests they are quite proactive in their sort of defensive display, stepping out out of their position, you know, intercepting the pass. So that's sort of a good proxy of of proactive defending if a higher volume of, of interceptions. And I suppose on the on the flip side of it, more of a reactive uh, defender or centre back can be someone who makes more blocks or more clearances and the kind of meat and potatoes side of of defending, I suppose. So you can look at it in terms of style more so than success, but I suppose that's why we'll come onto it as to why it's it's so tricky to to look at the success because it's so dictated by that team style. So you write quite a lot of pieces on the site 
um, focused on recruitment, player scouting, data scouting. And one of the, the things that uh, Tom Warville, previously of this parish and yourself, uh, have done really well is, is help to visualise uh, data to, to help the reader understand better the, the style of a player and... I guess, ideally, what they're very good at, what they're not so good at. Uh, and often that comes in the form of a pizza chart where for any given position on the pitch, uh, this pizza chart will have different sort of segments, if you will, different slices uh, that will represent a different metric or stat. Uh, and, well, the, the amount of coverage on each slice on the pizza can give quite a good idea of style. But are you suggesting that we should be careful to assume someone with a, a very large pizza or a very full pizza is necessarily a very good player. It may just be a fact of being a very active defender, playing a very active defensive role. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's something which we, we do on site, as you say, in terms of the smarter scout data that we use to inform that uh, that pizza chart. And a lot of them in the defensive side of things is yeah frequency and volume of actions, which shows that they do a lot of these things. But Maybe it's something we can come on to shortly, but it, it, it's key to say with that smarter scout data is that it's accounted for or adjusted for the opportunity to defend. So if we were to use a really obvious example, Virgil van Dijk versus, let's say, James Tarkovsky in terms of Liverpool versus Burnley, their sort of raw numbers will be very, very different because Liverpool see a lot of the ball. So Virgil van Dijk has a lot less opportunity to defend compared with James Tarkovsky. So mm. that's what Smarter Scout does. And there's, there's multiple ways which we can come on to, to adjust for how much that player is the designated defender as well to see, okay, well, given the opportunity to defend or to make those actions, then how much do they do it? So you're sort of working on more of a level playing field than just saying, James Tarkovsky makes twice the number of tackles than Virgil van Dijk, therefore mm. he is the best defender. That's far too rudimentary. Um, and I wouldn't <laughs> be in a job if I did say that. Well, I think it's very intuitive, isn't it? And I, I feel like we've probably still got some way to go um, in the, the mainstream, I guess, to really maybe better understand uh, defensive statistics and defensive performance. That that certainly goes some way to helping. Uh, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We're talking central defenders and specifically the difficulty in measuring their quality and performance with stats and data. More of that up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Michael, I know that you're someone who likes to mix, merge, you know, using your own eyes watching games to, to uh, analyze performance, but you're also not averse to dipping into the stats as well to, to help with that. Um, when it comes to centre-backs, what would you traditionally look at first in terms of statistics and why? To be honest, I have very rarely used statistics over the years when talking about centre-backs because I don't necessarily know what I'm looking for. And uh, I mean, until relatively recently, the only stats we, we had that were publicly available were... I suppose tackles and interceptions and aerial duels, and there's a limited amount you can do with that. Um, but in preparation for this podcast, I've I've gone on a bit of a journey and did have a look at the stats. For, Enlightenment. Uh, yeah, for, I, I had a look at the stats for defenders, and these are quite basic stats. So I was just looking at tackles, aerial duels, one interceptions, 
aerial duels and dribbled past by the opponent, which I think is an interesting one because it's what we mentioned earlier with Van Dijk. And I basically ranked, got all the defenders who played more than 1,500 uh, minutes so far this year and basically ranked them in terms of uh, how, how rarely they are dribbled past by an opponent, uh, kind of weighted in terms of minutes and also the aerial dual success rate. Ranked them in both categories, 1 to 39, and uh, found their average rank between those categories. And the two players who came out top from this very, very, very basic research were Virgil van Dijk and Antonio Rudiger, who I think a lot of people would probably say were the best two defenders in the league this year. Now, this is clearly very basic stuff. It doesn't include tracking data. It doesn't include any kind of advanced metrics. But I'm maybe less sceptical about uh, defense, basic defensive stats than I was a couple of days ago. I love that you've gone from, I never really knew what to look for, to... I've I've created my own bulletproof metric in ten minutes. It, yeah, it's you're incredible right. self confidence. It is very bulletproof. Um, it doesn't rate Ruben Diaz very highly. I must admit that's an issue. Ben White comes out quite badly as well. Not the most aerially dominant, is he? But any any quote algorithm that puts Van Dijk and Rudiger top, I, I think there's something in that. I'll work on it. I cannot even begin to imagine how much Mark Kerry hated everything you just said. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the most basic metric, which you've presented as being, you know, quite clever, quite smart, um, probably quite a lot of a confirmation bias involved <laughs> as well, Mark. Um, you know, so so little detail as to be quite disgusting, I think, for a for a data analytics writer. I'm here for anyone who's willing to create their own algorithm. I'll happily <laughs> happily have the conversation. That's that's is algorithm fine. even the right word well, here? Just, I feel like that's giving it a bit too much credit I as well. I was just using Michael's phrasing, but um, <laughs> no, I think it's an interesting one in terms of kind of unpicking that more generally um, to sort of make a serious point of kind of how much stock I guess you do place in the defensive, sorry, the the stat side of defensive work to then kind of dig into to video. So I suppose from a striker's perspective, you can place a fair amount of stock in in terms of their expected goals and things like that, and using the data and obviously supplementing with traditional scouting. But then using stats from a defensive side, I'd probably the the proportion of importance that I place on it, you know, from a scouting and recruitment perspective, would be a lot smaller than if it were to be maybe a, an attacker. So um, it's an interesting use of the stats. I think that's something as well, kind of going through opportunity. So it might work both ways as well, where, yes, there was that one, was it two seasons ago now, where Virgil van Dijk went the whole season without being dribbled past. But it does it work both ways, whereby the none of the attackers go anywhere near him because they know that they're not going to get any change out of him. So he's not had any opportunity to be dribbled past. Therefore, he looks mm. like a, a world beater, which of course he is one of the best defenders in the world. But it kind of works both ways, doesn't it, in terms of opportunity. So um, plenty mm. to unpack, but I, I, I'm here for the chat. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to go in two-footed again on Michael, but I'm, I'm interested to know why this dribbled past stat seems to get so much traction when we talk about centre-backs. I mean, I might be wrong here, but, but compared to you know, aerial duels, for example, or maybe blocks or interceptions. I'm not sure a centre-back being dribbled past or, or having the opportunity to be dribbled past happens that much in a Premier League game. Well, <laughs> you could be right. I mean, just a quick look at the stats again shows that Virgil van Dijk and Mark Guehi very rarely dribble past mm -hmm. and uh, Kaglas Soyuncu is very often dribbled past. 
Um, but how often do you get an attacker? Like, okay, it, I guess in transition, that is quite a big part of of defending. So if you're playing in a team with a high line and you're regularly having to defend counter attacks, then I suppose that is pretty important. But for you know, for a lot of defenders, how often is a striker going to be picking up the ball on the edge of the area and trying to dribble past you? That is true, but I think a lot of things don't happen that much in football. That over the course of a season, you can find stats for. I mean, goals don't happen much, Ali, but I'm sure you're happy to, you know, work out how many times a team has scored at the end of 90 minutes. So, I only like to know how many a team is expected to score, not how well, many they actually there you go. score. It's the right, you're on the right podcast then, aren't you? <laughs> I'm going to try and play peacemaker just a little bit here and say that you both make good points. Um, but I do think, yeah, the team style is, is something which I think is really sort of interesting. And going back to something John Muller has done previously as well, I think we spoke about it before in terms of that piece he did on no-touch All-Stars. He spoke about Connor Cody, um, of how, because obviously Wolves play in a back three, the actual actions that Connor Cody makes defensively and kind of on the ball is <laughs> next to zero. He's, he's very, very sort of low activity, but... Would you take him out of the team? Is is he any less important to Wolves? Would the Wolves fans argue that? No, I think he's very, very important because of all of the, I guess, the intangible things that he does, um, his organisation, and he is that kind of last line of defence um, where possible. But he, he's made the second fewest interceptions per 90 of any central defender this season, but he's still really important to the team. So it kind of just gives a flavour, again, that it's, if any of us were to just look at a, a league that we don't know or have never watched football before and looked at the, the data on centre-backs, it's such a minefield to work out who may be better or worse. It's more just kind of mm -hmm. stylistic. OK, let's put the Cox metric behind us. <laughs> yes, to be honest, it's been a bit frosty between me and Michael ever since the back-to-square-one debacle from last week. <laughs> um, Mark, how much does team style come into this as well and by coming to this I mean create even more confusion with defenders centre-backs stats and data you know team style in general is not something that a player chooses but I'm sure it could have a big impact on how their data might look you know just off the top of my head low block versus high line you're doing very different things defensively um, are you being asked to build up from the back or are you being asked to hit it long. These things are going to have a huge impact, presumably, in, in what your data looks like. Yeah, and this is where I probably would move away from kind of what you call count data. So just simply counting the, the volume of actions that a player makes and maybe look more towards the location of those defensive actions and try and create a bit of a clearer picture there. Again, if you're thinking from a recruitment perspective. So I feel like I'm throwing James Tarkovsky under the bus here. But if you were to plonk him in Liverpool's high line, then he'd he'd be a fish out of water because he's so adept at playing more of a, a deep block and, and comfortable within that deep block as well. So it, yeah, it's, you're right. The team style and the, the context is key, as, as we've often said before, in terms of not just the volume of those defensive actions, but where they're made. And if you see that James Tarkovsky, for example, doesn't make any defensive actions beyond his own defensive third, then... If you were a team looking to, to play a high line, or you already play a high yeah. line and you're looking for a new centre-back, you probably wouldn't look towards James Tarkovsky, irrespective of how his defensive quality is, I suppose. So that, that context, that, um, yeah, that style is, is absolutely key. Um, and again, I'm thinking at it from a recruitment perspective, um, but it's so important to have that context. Isn't that interesting, Michael? Because it, it begs the question, you know, how much do players and how much should players think about the teams that they're joining 
purely in terms of the, the style of play and how that might how that might impact, let's say, their numbers and how that might impact them down the line when they're looking for their next move. You know, there are a lot of players who have played hundreds of games now in the Premier League for Burnley who have performed well for a Premier League side for years, but who are almost sort of, they have a black mark against their name because they've played for Burnley. And as Mark said, no one's going to definitively trust James Tarkovsky in a, you know, playing out from the back highline system. But again, through no fault of his own, really. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think with respect to Burnley, I think that is a, a factor in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a factor in why Nick Pope, I think, probably won't ever get a chance for England because his distribution, he's just not asked to do those kind of things. Dwight McNeil, I think, is a really talented young player who is one of the few wingers he's usually played on his stronger side because he goes down the line and crosses. Again, the big sides don't really want that. So, yeah, with the exception of Chris Wood, where I think obviously what you see is what you get, um, you don't see many Burnley players moving to, to bigger sides uh, for big money, despite the fact some of them do their jobs very well. Mm. There was a quite an interesting article written by Sam at Goal Analysis, uh, which I saw and read and shared on, on Twitter early in the week. And it was sort of similar to this sort of thing. It, it, he took Mark Cucurella as a case study and his transition from Getafe, who are a very extreme tactical side with a very extreme high press and a very direct style of play. Um, and now, obviously, Cucurella plays and is playing very well for Brighton, who have an entirely different playing style. In fact, he's playing pretty much in a different part of the pitch. And therefore, um, you know, the, the, the article's all about how Cucurella's numbers at Getafe or the top line numbers might have suggested that he wouldn't be a good fit for Brighton, but that team style plays such a big part into it. You know, what could we have seen watching the video and, and digging a bit deeper into the data to suggest that Cucurella would transition easily? I thought it was a really interesting article um, and definitely made me think a little bit closer about how, how to judge players and how to judge that translation mark, you know, from team to team, from league to league, from style to style. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Um, we haven't really spoken about on-ball defensive stats. Of course, defending is one thing. These days, as they say, it's not enough just to, to head it and kick it. You have to pass it. You have to carry it. Uh, what should we be looking at for defenders in terms of their ball-playing ability? I think it's, it builds really neatly from what you, you were just saying about Cucurella as, as well there, Ali, because, it, it again, it comes down to team style and how much you can adapt that. And I think... I, I remember listening to another podcast, I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was a kind of a, a scout who basically said that they themselves were, he was recruiting for a, a very pass heavy possession dominant team. And he saw this centre back who was playing for a team who wasn't necessarily high possession themselves. But when he did have the ball, the opportunities that he took to maybe play a progressive pass or a, um, a neat dribble was kind of higher than higher than average so I think it again it comes down to opportunity and you can look at things with centre-backs of maybe how many progressive passes they make per 100 touches so you could maybe take them out of maybe a less possession dominant team but show that their style or their inclination to actually make these progressive passes is higher such that if you were to put them in in a more of a possession dominant team they'd, they'd also make a higher volume of progressive passes but again I do think it comes down to um, to style um, whether or not yeah, the, the style of the team want want the player to make more progressive passes or to dribble or play more, more long balls or whatever, um, or just keep it really simple on the ball. Make sure that you do the... I don't want to keep coming back to Burnley, but make sure you do the, uh, the fundamentals well. Um, 
and, and just focus on your defensive responsibilities. Hold down to style is my short answer. It's another one where if you're looking at the sort of publicly available stats websites, whether that be who scored or even, you know, paid sites like Scout, and you're trying to do your own data scouting of sorts, it makes it really difficult, particularly with the proliferation, as Michael's discussed, of uh, three at the back systems when it comes to centre backs. And then also in terms of full backs and wing backs, it, it can just make it really difficult to, you know, m- most of these sites don't, uh, specify very well between centre-backs who are playing, let's say, as the outside centre-back in a three, where they're simply in different areas of the pitch to those playing as a centre-back in a back four. And so the things that they're doing in terms of progressing the ball particularly, they have more space to do so. They often have better passing angles in, in order to, to make progressive passes, but they probably have more space to, to carry the ball up the pitch, even if it's only a few metres, uh, and more of a remit to do that because they have covering defenders next to them. It's the same with full-backs and wing-backs. You know, I always feel quite bad um, that someone playing as a full-back in a back four in general will will not come out that well on the data compared, certainly in terms of attacking stuff, uh, compared to a, a wing-back, again, just because of the team formation and the team style. So um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm quite down on all this because it, it feels like we're kind of saying, this is really difficult. And frankly, for, for your average Joe, like myself, that <laughs> there's no easy way of doing this. There's no easy way of uh, of kind of measuring all this. So that that's where the... Well, the I, I came up with an easy way of doing it, Ali, and you weren't impressed. Well, that's going to need to be peer-reviewed, Michael, before <laughs> Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the outcome of that this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast next on the agenda with Michael Cox and Mark Kerry well we've heard about the issues with centre-back stats what about some solutions Michael I want to talk about centre-back partnerships uh, as discussed defensive solidity is quite a collective thing and if we're looking at centre-backs you know the partnership is is really really important um, is there an argument that we should try a bit harder to measure centre-back partnerships together I think this comes back to a piece that you wrote about Leicester probably over a year ago now where you said I think of all centre-backs as either a dog or a cat this piece was about central defensive partnerships yeah, I, I wasted that on a mere match report, that, that idea. I didn't really think people would be interested in the whole dogs and cats thing with centre-backs, obviously pretty topical this week. But I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's it's often a combination of stats. I think of the best centre-back partnerships as, as kind of contrasting styles. I always think Vidic and Ferdinand probably the best of the Premier League era for me. So, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, if you're looking to get someone alongside, let's say... I suppose Thiago Silva maybe at the moment because he doesn't have the pace. Um, obviously, very good in a number of respects, but you wouldn't really, you wouldn't necessarily want another Thiago Silva at his current age alongside him. I think you'd want someone who's quicker on the turn and speedy. And obviously, Chelsea's a little bit difficult to judge in this respect because they use a back three. But I think he's an example of someone where you would want slightly different qualities. You would want a Rudy who can, who can uh, sweep up alongside him. So yeah, the, the partnership with centre backs is, is very important and. I mean, this is a slight digression, but I was actually looking at, you know, the, the the types of combinations used by the top teams this year. And there aren't that many really solid partnerships where you know who you're going to get every week. And I do wonder mm. whether that has contributed to some size not defending particularly well this season. As you've mentioned, the best partnerships are not two of the same player, but two players that complement each other well in whichever way. And, and it strikes me in recruitment, particularly, Mark, it would be valuable to think about centre-backs 
as a group rather than individuals and you know if you're squad building in the summer to make sure that you're going into the season with a group that complement each other so of course you're probably you're going to want to have four centre-backs let's say um, in your squad and it seems to me quite valuable to think of it as well we want let's say two dogs and two cats right so that we've got that nice balance yeah and I suppose it comes back to the, the thing I said before in terms of that proactive and, and reactive sort of defensive actions as well and I guess you could you could look at it in front of them and behind them as well because it is all about that dynamic of of course the goalkeeper as well and making sure that let's say if you're playing a high line that the goalkeeper knows that that space maybe 20 30 yards in front of them is the goalkeeper's patch someone who's quick off their own line as well for example um, and then thinking in front of them of the midfielders and maybe the defensive midfielder at that who might be a bit more of a a destroyer and knowing okay mm. well should it be the center back there who's stepping out to to make that defensive action or should you leave that to the um to the defensive midfielder as well so again it always comes back to to dynamics partnerships between the center backs but dynamics between the the center backs and the midfield and the goalkeeper as well so it's all about that alchemy of how that's going to work perfectly and some teams have got it some teams haven't in terms of stats and data is there is there any way that we can measure a partnership you know, this might sound incredibly basic, but is there a way that we could take, let's say, Konza and Mings, and we understand that Mings is going to be much more active in terms of engaging with attackers, and we understand that Konza is going to be um, much less active, but much more uh, taken with positioning and being the last line of defence where necessary. Um, can we merge their numbers together and, and make a sort of combined partnership number? I don't know of anything that's kind of been done officially on that. I think it'd be an interesting one. Have I just have I just created my own? Metric? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, that's this. how easy it is. Andy. That's how easy it is. <laughs> There's another algorithm. I'm going to be out of a job by the end of this episode. This is unbelievable. Um, there may well be. I don't know if I'm giving the politicians answer or saying that's not that I know of, but it's very much something I'd like to look into. But um, uh, yeah, I suppose it, again, it probably comes down to the opportunity to do it. But even just looking at those, yeah, the raw defensive numbers. If you didn't know what type of player Mings and Konza were, then you could look into say, okay, well, this player makes far more interceptions. This makes this player makes far more blocks, and you can start to understand what their role is within that partnership, and maybe look at the data to to see maybe who is the cat and who is the dog, for example. I imagine, despite me and Michael solving it in what just over thirty five <laughs> minutes, that there probably has been quite a lot of quite intense and detailed work being done on this front in the analytics sphere because uh, that sphere is all about problem solving is all about trying to do things better uh, what is being done in the analytics sphere that you've seen to improve the understanding and analysis of the center back position well i think from a defensive stat viewpoint i think just a very simple one which we sort of alluded to before is to of the defensive stats um, which we do on on site as well is just to simply possession adjust it so I spoke about it before but just make sure that which with whichever you know, defensive stat you look at, make sure that it's adjusted for the opportunity to perform that defensive action. And there's some simple ways that you could do that. One being simply a level playing field of saying, how much does this player make this action per 1,000 opponent touches? So that you then got the the standard um, level playing field there. In, in terms of the analytics sphere, um, I think there's some interesting work that's, that's going on in, well across data companies, obviously, at, at the moment. They're looking always to improve our our understanding of the game, but there's um, a, a Bengaluru-based analyst called uh, Aditya Kotari, 
uh, whose name I, I hope that I've pronounced correctly. Um, and he's been doing some interesting work and it's going back over, well, nearly a year now. Um, he presented at a conference and it was looking at a, a pass prevention model, um, which essentially looks to measure how players defend the space off the ball. And this is kind of leading into something we spoke about last week in terms of that, the tracking data um, and using a pitch control model, which I think I alluded to last week, but essentially looking to quantify which area of the pitch each player controls such that if the ball were to reach their area, they would be able to get to it first. Now, mm -hmm. the basic idea of this pass prevention model is that you first kind of measure where a defender is keeping the ball from preventing the ball from going and then giving him the credit for the, the space that they are preventing the attacker from getting. Mm. So again, link it's a bit like what you said earlier about Van Dyke. Yeah. If he's so terrifying that opposition attackers are simply avoiding the issue, then actually Van Dyke would get a fair amount of credit, much more than he would do in, in the event data. Yeah, exactly. And this is where I wrote in my notes that this would be where Virgil van Dyke would really come into his own, I think, within this model, because yeah, his presence or his positioning will stop the opponent from getting to a lucrative area of space. So we spoke about last week in terms of that possession value model. If there's a certain area of the pitch that the player that there's a ball on to be able to play it you know in behind but that that defender is blocking that space really neatly with their positioning they would get no credit for an on-ball event you know statistic there uh, or piece of data but their their positioning is preventing that lucrative area from being attacked by the opponent then they should get their you know that bit of credit so i think it's a really interesting model um that's sort of working with tracking data and more off-ball stuff to show Again, that absence of a defensive action, but really good positioning actually leads to the, the dynamic of the opponent actually having to, to adapt their attack, for example. Mm. Every time we talk about tracking data, I get a bit sad that like we can't really access it. <laughs> I know that there are bits and bobs and don't get me wrong, I wouldn't know the first thing what to do with it. I'm sure Michael would work it out very quickly, but um, uh, but it's a shame we can't use it. Obviously, with, within certain clubs in particular, Mark, tracking data is is helping them uh, hopefully improve their decision-making in terms of, of match plans and match analysis, but also in terms of recruitment. Uh, I bet the clubs with the best analytics departments have got some pretty sexy centre-back data scouting tools. Yes, yeah, you'd, you'd hope so. You'd imagine so. And as you say, I bet there's, there's loads of clubs that are doing this and delving into this more and more I think some that I, I know of um, are certainly Liverpool so using that pitch control uh, model that was actually created by um, or certainly pioneered by someone called William Spearman who's on the, the data team at Liverpool um, and City Football Group um, have a really wide uh, data team a big uh, team who do a lot of hard work there and no doubt they'll have a lot of complex models they've uh, had a fairly recent um, hire for someone who's uh, who's very well respected within the, the analytics sphere, um, who was who's very good at tracking data as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it would correlate, wouldn't it, in terms of Manchester City and Liverpool have, have got some of the, well, certainly the best centre-backs uh, in the Premier League. So they must have a secret somewhere. We just don't know what it is. Well, I think we've done this justice. I'm not 100% sure how many answers we've received, <laughs> but Mark, a massive thanks for talking us through it because uh, I think it's a really interesting topic. And, and Michael... 
thanks for all of your hard work as well on this. Uh, it's been fascinating how to measure centre-backs with stats. Uh, that's been this week's topic. We'll have another uh, in the chamber ready for you next week. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to get each podcast as soon as it is released. Make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well. You can read all the writing that Mark and Michael and their talented colleagues are putting up on site. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Your place to get 33% off an annual subscription. That's it from us this week. Please do join us next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.